I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. We're in New York City today with two folks that I've worked with for a long time and I greatly admire. Dana Cowan, uh, editor almost forever of Food, <laughs> Food and Wine magazine. Uh, but now with your own podcast called uh, Broadly Speaking? Called Speaking, Speaking Broadly. Broadly. Speaking Broadly. I've tried it like five different times today. Speaking Broadly or Broadly Speaking. It's Speaking Broadly. It is. And you interview and have conversations with some amazingly powerful women in the Food space or just in general? Well, the show airs on Heritage Radio Network, which is listener-supported um, food radio. So I do talk to women who are in the food space. But what I find exciting about it is that these are not the women who are the chefs, who are the faces, who are the names. Like, they're not famous, but what they do is behind the scenes and really important and very interesting. So it could be everybody from um, Farah Masani, who is a farmer. Uh, she has satellite farms in Connecticut, which means that she puts farmers on other people's land, and then some of the produce goes to a CSA. Some of the produce... A CSA, community-supported agriculture. Yep. Yes. Some of it goes to the hungry, and some of it goes to the restaurant group for whom she worked, which is Barteca. So I talk to people who are general managers or a restaurant lawyer or a PR person or an agent or... I find that everyone wants to get into the food world yes. because it's so much fun that no one knows where to start. And if you listen to this podcast, you can learn the successes and the challenges of um, people who do interesting jobs that are just not so obvious. Thank you for being here, Dana. And you've been a great Chair of Strength supporter for a long time. I can't think of a dinner that we've done that you have not been at and supported. So <laughs> it's really a treat to have you here. I'm a, you know, I'm a huge fan. Fan girl. Uh, also here with another great Share Strength supporter, Eamon Rocky, who is a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. Uh, I knew him mostly as um, somebody who had built the restaurant Betany, uh, which was one of my favorites in New York. But now you're developing a new idea of your own. That's right. And I'm honored to be here among such great company. Um, I'm launching a spirits brand in, in the fall of this year called Rockies, uh, making surprise, surprise milk punch. For those of you who know me, you know that that's uh, kind of my favorite thing to drink and talk about. Um, and with, tell people what milk punch is because I only barely knew before we sat down. Understood. Although I'm, I'm convinced that I've served it to you before uh, on more I'll than one occasion. Have, yes. <laughs> Maybe you served me too much of it and I don't remember. <laughs> that's certainly possible. Yeah, the diminishing returns. Um, so it's a, it's a really old spirit uh, with its roots in, in Great Britain, uh, over 400 years of, of history, a great story that sort of crosses uh, to to the United States. A long time ago, Ben Franklin had his own recipe. A lot of early diplomats exchanged uh, uh, their own methods and, and techniques for making them, uh, the founding fathers. Oh, my God, you should do a founding fathers treatise on milk punch. It's, been, just, it's oh. been proposed already. Oh, you yeah. need a quill to write it with. Serve, totally. serve it at Hamilton. My handwriting is awful. Right. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but... Uh, um, Essentially, you take some sort of spirit, whatever you like, and you blend it with tea and uh, some sort of acidic citrus juice, usually lemon or lime. Uh, you can add other things, whatever whatever it is that suits your fancy, but uh, that's sort of the crux of it. You boil milk, you combine it all, and if you clarify it properly, what you have comes out like water, perfectly clear. It's magical and um, absolutely delicious, ages like wine, and, and it's just one of the most exciting uh, beverages I've, I've ever had. I come from a chef's background. I went to the CIA, as you mentioned, and cooked professionally for about seven years and started moving into the dining 
dining room, uh, hospitality kind of um, uh, infected me uh, whenever I was uh, at culinary school. And eventually I moved my way into the bar where I was able to utilize the skill set of a cook, of a chef, and and also keep my hands in, in beverage and wine and spirits and, and service. So uh, I, see, I see this project as really being the uh, sum of a lot of different experiences in my life. And I'm very, very excited and very lucky to be in the position I am right now. I didn't realize that Milk Punch could age. Oh yeah, it's incredible. So it gets better and better. Well, it can, you know, just like yeah, just, just like wine. Yeah. If you use things that innate, innately age well, uh, they do. Um, there's one that I made a couple of years ago, and I cracked open recently just for fun, and and it's so cool. Uh, it was it was like bourbon and pineapple and black tea and a few other really yummy things. And like now, it's like Sautern. It's insane. Um, and then you have others that maybe are really fresh. So you drink drink watermelon mint milk punch with pisco in the summer for me that's something you want to drink like right now right you know you wouldn't necessarily think to have that aging for too long uh so i i I liken it to wine all the time because um some are fresh and fruity and designed for summertime in the moment and then others you lay down you don't touch them for a few years so will you do different milk punches like will you have a series of them Totally. Um, I'm starting with an original formula uh, that's um, that's intended to be mixed with any other base spirit or even champagne or tonic or soda or beer is delicious too, believe it or not. Um, so it's it's designed in terms of its sweetness, acidity, and flavor profile to be very friendly with whatever people already like. And, and that's, that's sort of uh, my hope and, and dream uh, in, in terms of introduction to the market is that people will say, I don't know what this is, but I know I like gin, so let's try this with gin. And, and I think... I know, I believe, I've, I've done a lot of testing on this myself and with my, my friends and colleagues that um, it's, a, it's a pretty easy sell once you get to try it. It's yummy stuff. And we're going to be able to enjoy it at restaurants and buy it at retail? That's the hope That's and the goal, yep. yeah, so but by I mean, the end of this year. One of the things I want to talk to both of you about is how the food world has changed. So, Dana, you are somehow like forever young. I can't believe that you were anywhere for 21 years, but you were at Food & Wine Magazine for 21 years as editor-in-chief. It was, you're exactly right. It wasn't forever, but it was for 21 years, yes. Um, but as I say, you're forever young, but you've seen this tremendous amount of change. And I just, uh, I would love to hear you talk about where you think the kind of the food world is going. One of the things that I think all three of us have witnessed, and, I, and, and it's so uh, particular to Share Our Strength, is when we started Share Our Strength in 1984, which is more than 21 years ago, chefs were just on the cusp, kind of on the bubble of becoming celebrities and, and major figures. And now... You know, we all know chefs who are better known than politicians, better known than senators. Um, I was telling somebody earlier today that uh, I've been in, you know, classrooms with a chef and a governor or a chef and a senator. And the kids all know who the chef is because they've seen them on a cooking show, you know, Top yeah. Chef or Chopped or whatever. And they have no idea who the governor or senator is. But it, it's actually like that. But how, how, how have you seen this change? Because you've seen everything. Yeah. I think politicians need to cook. That, that's the answer. Yeah, that and, might... that, and, and today cooks are politicians, right? Chefs are politicians. And that is, in fact, one of the big changes that I've seen because as – Chefs became better known moving out of the kitchen and, you know, greeting their fans and um, their profiles rising. Chefs are very hospitable people and they um, they care about the world. Caring about food means caring about the world around you. It means not just caring about the patrons who can um, afford your food, but those who cannot afford your food. So one of the, the things that I've watched that is so uh, 
gratifying and important is using the restaurant as a way to shape culture, whether it's um, talking about farmers, talking about organics, talking about whatever their pet causes. And a lot of chefs have adopted causes and and even started their own campaigns. Um, so I'm really interested in the, the chef as world changer. Um, the chefs have introduced so many cultures to Americans. So I think that one of the changes in the way that we eat is that um, through the restaurants that we go to, we've become more, those of us who care have become much more accepting of the global, mm. um, the, the entire world, because we've had a, the food of a chef. Tonight I'm going to a Syrian refugee dinner. You know, I think that, that that's something that the chef community takes on as a challenge yes. that they want to to solve. Um, so the global influence, I think, is extremely important. And I think that we've also seen uh, the shift from going to a restaurant to eat dinner because you're hungry and you want a night out with your wife to either an experience that blows your mind, you know, something like Blue Hillstone Barns where the environment is so essential to the meal and it's one seamless story. And then... Destination restaurants. Destination restaurants. Effect, right? And um, and at the other end, how the chefs and caring so much about uh, the food that's on the plate has shaped the, the lower end, fast food, or what would have been called fast food. So now that there are chains that would have never existed 20 years ago with really high quality ingredients for not as much money um, served quickly. And that the chefs have done that. So I just think they've really changed our lives. No, I, know, I know that there's a lot of them and we don't want to leave anybody out. But just as a, a few examples, who are some of the chefs that you think have had the, the most profound impact on culture? I think Jose Andreas. I mean, that's, that's who I was going to say. Is that yeah. right? Just when you're talking about like Jose thinks about the globe, he thinks about the whole world. Another DC guy. Yeah. Yeah. DC chef. I think the thing about Jose is he touches so many important things. Number one, he himself is an immigrant and he speaks as someone who's passionate about this country and the opportunities that this country has given him. His restaurants are at the very, very high end that are experimental, so the best of what we can have with experimental cooking. But also, he's doing fast casual that's vegetarian. So he's also introducing really healthy food um, to a larger number of people. And at the same time, he has um, a project bringing cook stoves to Haiti. Yes. And so I think that he touches so many things. He's, he's a cook. He's a thinker. He's an activist. And he really wants Americans to be eating delicious food. I want to ask you uh, both a little bit about how you came to be doing what you're doing now. Uh, when I think of the Share Our Strength staff, which is a couple hundred strong, young organization, many millennials, they're always very interested in transitions and inflection points in people's careers. Um, it, I think it's easy when you're young to believe that uh, people's careers go in straight lines, but those of us who are a little older know that they don't. There's zigs and zags and unpredict unpredictability to it. Um, and you've each made pretty big transitions over just the last a uh, couple of years. So Bettany was this really, uh, in a very short time, became this iconic 
restaurant. Um, and you. then you all decided to close. It was an, a, just an unbelievable dining experience. It was really one of my favorite restaurants in New York. I think I'd probably only been there three or four times, but um, my wife and I loved it. And it was just really a special place. And you made it special. Thank you. Hard for you to leave? Did it feel like uh, it was time? Did it feel like it was out of your control? Or? Bittersweet, for yeah. sure. You know, people ask me all the time if I miss the restaurant. And my response uh, by sort of reflex is I miss the people, you know, um, a restaurant's a very special place. But, uh, when I started on my, on my path in New York city and in great dining rooms, uh, it was always about initially mechanics and about excellence and about, about, you know, the motions that make something elegant and beautiful. And it, it became more of a performance for me, or at first it was a performance when, uh, over the last few years, especially I realized that, that was important as a foundation, but what I spent my time thinking about every day when the restaurant was open was how to invest more in my team and how then we could translate our connectivity and our um, shared uh, sense of responsibility and goals to providing excellence for our guests just through care for them, you know. So um, from from my perspective, it was uh, the right the right team to close with. We were the best restaurant we'd ever been uh, in the history of the restaurant. We were open for four years, um, and it's really it's really sad that we're not um, we're not working together on Fifty Seventh Street anymore. But those people remain my friends. They remain my community, and I see them all the time, and I talk to them constantly. So, um, in a, in a way, I still feel like the spirit of of that place remains. So, Eamon, uh, when you were at Betney, in the back of your mind, were you thinking uh, Milk Punch Spirits Company? Has that always been something, a direction that you were headed in, or did it um, materialize when when Betney decided to close? Sure. Um, I, I've always been a, a thoughtful person in terms of my own trajectory and career, and, and I try to think uh, where where each moment in my life is taking me and how I can how I can take the most from it and prepare myself for the next move. Um, I invested every ounce of my heart and soul into that restaurant um, for the four years it was open, and there were a lot of tears shed on the on that last day that we were open. That said, um, for about a year prior to Betney's closure, without ever relating the two, it was never either or. They could certainly have existed uh, at yeah. the same time. So I want to be very clear: it was never. I'm going to start working on this next thing, so whenever Betney is over, I can start doing that full time. Um, I always saw them as being very, very complementary, and and I would have loved to have Milk Punch happening and also Betney happening. Uh, so to be very clear, they were independent of each other. But uh, I was working on on Rockies, uh, what became Rockies, and what will be released on onto the market as. Rocky's Milk Punch uh, for about a year. And, uh, you know, until I got to know the spirit as intimately uh, as I as I know it now, I couldn't have done it. So um, it was a learning process. It's not as simple as, as just opening a book, looking at a recipe and saying, I'm going to put this into a bottle and, and make a million cases and, and everything will be great, you know. So it was, it was a getting to know you phase mm-hmm. also. And I feel like it's important to say, too, that uh, I feel like I entered this industry yesterday. You know, I've, <laughs> I've been working in in restaurants and in hotels and cocktail bars for oh seventeen years now, and I've been working in New York for eleven of those. Um, and I, I still feel like I'm I'm a kid, you know, and and I stand amazed at some of the people that I've been able to to work with and for and around. Um, so my future, I see it as being just completely open book. 
Medina, in terms of what's next for you, my sister, Debbie Shore, who yes. often does this podcast with me and who started Share Strength with me, she tried to describe to me what she thought you were doing next in terms of lifestyle, entertainment, digital technology, how digital brings it to your home. But that was the most I got. So tell us. I think she did a great job with that. Okay. It sounded pretty it sounded pretty <laughs> enticing to me, but it's I like she's wanted, here. I want to make sure I really understood what you're up to. Um, I'm very interested in the intersection of food, technology, and home. Mm. And I think that home has become the lost space because we've spent so much time in the the two decades, recent two decades, out at restaurants. And restaurants have fulfilled all of our needs. So they've fulfilled the entertainment need, they've fulfilled the gathering need, and they've fulfilled the need to just plain old eat. But I I envision a return to home that we haven't seen in a long time. But when we go back there, I don't believe that people are really cooking so much. It's something that I learned at Food and Wine, right? People love the recipes. You know, they would say, I love your magazine. It's incredible. And I would say, oh, are you a cook? And they'd be like, no, 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 but I love your magazine. They don't cook, but they love the lifestyle. They love the having uh, food of really phenomenal quality. So I'm going to document the real life as it actually is. And in, encourage through this brand called right now uh, the Instant Life. Encourage the Instant Life the instant is life. your new brand. And my new brand. Okay, I like it. Um, gathering, and you can and some cooking, but essentially using your phone to make food preparing easy. Right. So curating becomes the new cooking. And home becomes the new restaurant. And I'm creating a guide to this lifestyle that really is how everybody lives. It's what exists, but no one has really codified it or documented it or shared it or given it a value because people are more embarrassed about the idea Mm -hmm. of ordering in. You know, but they shouldn't be. Like curation is an incredible skill. So, for for example, last night I had um, someone over, and I went to a, the best Japanese um, grocery store in Edgewater, New Jersey, and I bought ten different pickles, and I bought Korean barbecue, and um, that you have to you know flash fry, and then some bok choy. So there's a little cooking involved. But it was this incredible explosion of pickles on the table. And, you know, it's essentially, if I could have ordered it by phone, that would have been more true to my <laughs> the brand I'm talking about. But the idea is to curate your meals to make them easy and accessible. Last thing I'd like to ask you both, um, you're both very involved in Share of Strength and involved yeah, we in talked lots enough about of that. I know. I, just, I know. Uh, I want to make wait, sure. We're going to get into the meat of this. We've been talking about such great stuff. But, you know, so, for example, you mentioned, Dana, that you're going to a, a dinner tonight for Syrian refugees, yes. I think. Um, Eamon's been deeply involved. I'm going in to a cocktail strength. party. We both have. You're going to a cocktail party. You probably go to a lot of those. You have to, right? <laughs> um, but one of the things I keep thinking about, and really just want your advice on it, since you've been so deeply engaged in community and so deeply engaged in the food world, is how do we continue to build a, um, I guess, a stronger bridge between the two? Um, you know, it's 
kind of the paradox between all the things we talk about and then the things that we see um, is really striking. I was I was up in New York last week and we visited PS seventy five, which is right at Ninety uh, Sixth Street and West End Avenue. Uh, fascinating school in a pretty good neighborhood. Sixty seven percent of the kids live below the poverty line. Sixty seven percent. Before Shara Strength moved breakfast to the classroom, from the cafeteria to the classroom, so it would be more accessible, 7% of the 700 kids were getting breakfast. Now, today, it's 100%. The principal spent about two hours That's with incredible. Us, an amazing guy, Principal O'Brien, who's been there 20 years. But when you think about the challenges that these schools have, I, I said to the teacher, Ms. Diaz, whose classroom we're in, fourth grade classroom, I said, it seems pretty manageable because you've got looks like you've only got about 15 kids. She said, well, there's eight more, but they, they come late all the time. I was like, why? She said, well, you know, they live far away. She said, well, some of them are homeless. A little girl in a homeless shelter in Queens has to catch the bus before 6 a.m. And she said, honestly, she misses the bus most mornings and then has to take two trains to get here. A fourth grader, right? That's I mean, just terrible. So, to think you, about and that. you just think, and and she's like and nine. she's coming from a homeless shelter. Yeah, they're like nine, and and this was and and until we moved breakfast to the classroom, only seven percent of these kids were getting breakfast in the morning, and you know, six hundred of them weren't. Now, all seven hundred are. But it just it you know, I think the constant struggle for me is with somebody as somebody who has a foot in kind of both places the 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 world of fine food and all the blessings and abundance that we enjoy and celebrate and afoot in uh, th these areas of need, as both of you do, uh, what can we be doing, particularly as a community? Share Our Strength has been at this for 33 years now, and I know, and we, you know, on the one hand, we've made a lot of progress. On the other hand, there's still such a long way to go, and there's so much opportunity, I think, to engage people because we all know so many people who basically feel... Um, even more fulfilled by being able to participate in these types of things. I mean, you've talked very eloquently about some of the experiences you've had traveling to places on behalf of Share Our Strength and what yes. it meant to you. So I don't know. I would just love, you know, as we kind of wrap up to get your thoughts on what else we could be doing and how we should be doing it, because I know it's something you both care about a lot. Sure. Uh, I completely agree with that. I, I feel like something that differentiates Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign from all others, like head and shoulders above all others. And there are a lot of really great uh, um, organizations out there and people with incredible intentions. But what Share Our Strength does so well and uniquely is that they enable people the opportunity to make a difference and to feel that difference. And uh, from my perspective, we now have in New York at the very least, and I, and I can speak um, confidently about that, and I've been able to visit uh, other markets. I was in Boston recently at a No Kid Hungry event and, and also participated in New Orleans and etc. Um, but at each of these events, you see leaders in the food and beverage community that all are conditioned almost to say yes, because they know that their efforts are going to translate into good. They'll be able to observe them, see them, champion them, and share that with others they care about and encourage their colleagues, their peers um, to participate as well, because the happiness they derive out of it and the impact they make are so clear and apparent. So uh, to continue to, to be able to continue to give people an opportunity to say yes uh, to making a difference and to seeing their their uh, the fruit of their labors um, is is what 
I think will continue to uh, fuel people's interest in participating with Share Our Strength. And uh, as long as that's central to the philosophy of the organization, I see it only continuing to grow and flourish. And it's such a generous industry, mm. the culinary community. It's just, it's got to be the most generous community that there is. I've never seen anything like it. What do you think, Dana? Um, I am going to take a a contrarian is not quite the word, but I'll build on that. I think that one of the things that you said earlier is that food is at the center of everything. It's at the center of the world. It's at the center of each individual's life because you have to eat every day. And when I think about the potential for moving share strength forward, I think about something like the chef cycle yes. uh, where you took a passion. It was chef's. Um, who are cycling, but you took a hardcore passion and were, you were able to raise money around that to do something that the chefs wanted to do. And boy, that was such an ambitious ride because I think they rode 300 miles. 300 miles, 100 miles yeah. a day for yeah. three days. It, that, was a, it was a push. That sounds like nothing I would ever do, but for, there were people who really, really got behind it. I felt like it gave you fantastic exposure and helps you cross over your world. Um we have to wrap up, but tell us where to find your podcast and what we should look for and who's going to be on it. And uh, So the podcast is called Speaking Broadly. It is available on Stitcher, iTunes, and Heritage Radio Network. And I'm incredibly excited about um, Farah Masani, who I mentioned earlier in the show. Her episode will post soon. Uh, Jen Pelka from The Riddler in San Francisco was the most recent um, episode. If you want to hear about an all-girl power champagne bar with incredible choices at the high end and the low, you have to listen to that. And I also did a, a Women in Wine hour and got news from Megan Krigbaum, who used to be at Food and Wine, but is a phenomenal writer and now writing it at Punch and doing books. And she was telling me all the places I need to look for wines that are need to be drunk right now. And Helen Johannesson, who has a, a wine shop called Helen's Inside John and Vinny's, which is one of the most successful restaurants in LA. She is a, a wine evangelist and will make you want to buy things you've just never heard of. So uh, those are a few of the upcoming episodes. And you release an episode once a week? Once a week, every Wednesday. Okay, we're going to be looking for it. And Eamon Rocky, you're telling us September we should be looking for Rockies and we can mix it with every kind of <laughs> drink that we like. That's right. I love. That's right. Congratulations. Ideally, September September is going to be the month, you know, but uh, fingers crossed. I'm here in New York with Eamon Rocky and Dana Cowan. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Billy. Thank you, guys. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach, Get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.